If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19. Um, If you do not have a Bible with you, um, just raise your hand, and one of our ushers will put one in your hand. Um, If you do not have a Bible, just throw your hand up, and one of our ushers will put one in your hand. Ushers, go ahead, and you are moving even now. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. If you do not own a Bible, um, a physical copy of a Bible, please take that as our gift to you. We want you to have access to God's Word, and this is a small token of our appreciation for you wanting that as well. If you've been trekking along with us, we've been in Acts for a few months now, um, walking through the different movements of the the Bible, um, walking through the different movements of this particular book. And we have taken this one book of Acts and have broken up into several distinct themes and movements of what the Holy Spirit is doing through the gathered church. And we've been walking for the last several weeks about talking about growing pains. After the birth of the church, after the expansion of the church, the church began to settle in to getting to know one another, to dealing with issues like the widows and Gentiles and, and Greeks and Jews, and they began to, to, to feel the burden of growing as a church. How do we love one another when it's many of us? How do we love one another when the people are different than us, when some people are circumcised and some people are not? And that may seem like a foreign concept to us, but we all struggle with that reality. There's some people who've been to church and know the rules and know all the songs and know all the, the unspoken rules of our gathering. And there are some people who do not. And that oftentimes makes for a messy church. And so we begin to see the growing pains of how God is not just sending out his people as missionaries, but how God is continuing to work in our hearts to keep us family. He has already made us brothers and sisters in Christ, but now he is keeping us in a spirit of unity, even through tension. Last week, Pastor Jake walked through the first part of this Acts chapter 19 and how we saw the supernatural happen. How Paul, who is the main character in this part of Acts, who was in a city called Ephesus, and he began to do miraculous things. I mean, handkerchiefs that had touched Paul began to heal other people if, touched, if it touched their skin. Demons were being cast out. The word was going forth. A miraculous and almost sensational time of the church was happening. And today we're going to pick up on the other half of that story in verses 21 through the end of the chapter. And this is the question that I want us to begin to think through as we read these words. What is the long-term change after years of faithful ministry? After the sensational miracles die down, after the excitement of the gathering goes away, Paul was in the city of Ephesus for three years, preaching and teaching regularly. What is the fruit of a long-term ministry? And more specifically to us, what does it look like to walk with God over time? Past the bursts of excitement that we may feel in gatherings like this, or maybe in conferences, or past the moments of ecstatic feelings that we get in moments throughout our Christian life, what does it look like to walk with God for a season, and what change should we expect? Pick up with me in verse 21. I'm going to read the entire passage for our hearing, and then we will go back and see what God has to say to us through his word. After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, it's necessary for me to see Rome as well. After sending to Macedonia two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. 
I'm going to pause here for a second because names and dates are comforting for some, discomforting for others. What Paul is doing is they had been in Ephesus for a season, and he wanted to travel back to some of the churches that he had been to and then go back to his home base in Jerusalem. And so he sent two of his co-workers on ahead, and so he was going to stay by himself, and that's an important role. He's going to stay by himself in the city of Ephesus for just a little bit longer, maybe to tie up some loose ends, maybe to fellowship with the brothers, give a final word of encouragement. But his co-laborers had been sent ahead. And verses 23 picks up really the the meat of this entire passage. About that time, verse 23, there was a major disturbance about the way. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hands are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. Pause there for just a second. Here's what's happening. I'll give you a clue. Paul nor any of the Christian brothers speak at all in the rest of this passage. This entire passage is told from the perspective of unbelievers. One of the few rare occasions where we get an extended story that's from the perspective of the unbelievers. This first conversation is a guy by the name of Demetrius, who's a silversmith. Now, once again, those are antiquated occupations, but the reality is, at this time, there were the, the dominant religion was polytheism around the world, which means they worship many gods. They had a God for the rain, a God for harvest, a God for fertility, a God for the soil. And whenever they needed one of their gods to do something, they would pray to that God. And part of idol worship in that time was the creation of little idols that you could pray to in your home. So this was big business, because if you really wanted to worship a God, you would have an image of that God in your home that you could bow down and pray to. Otherwise, maybe that God wouldn't hear your prayer. Now, I'm saying God, but this is little G God. You stay with me. And so the silversmiths began to notice that, okay, Paul's been preaching against idolatry. He's been saying that there's only one true God, Jesus. He made a way to God the Father, and we have to turn from our idols and accept him. Now, that's all fine and good until it begins to impact my economy. That's all fine and good, Paul, but now you're starting to hurt my pockets. And here we get the meat of the message for today. What does it look like to see the result and the fruit of faithful ministry over time, it looks like cultural transformation. It looks like cultural change. Because here's what's happening. Was Paul out picketing in front of the silversmith's office? No. Did he even explicitly say that you should not buy idols and keep them in your home? No. You see, he wasn't chasing the fruit of sinful behavior. He was getting at the root and saying, no, there is only one true God. And over time, people began to believe and accept Jesus Christ, and their behavior began to change so much so that the local economy began to shift. Let me land this plane here in North Charleston. What if we didn't have to boycott strip clubs? What if we didn't have to boycott the liquor store? What if through the preaching and teaching of God's word, through the community of God's people, that those places just went out of business? because they had no customers to go to, 
because people's affections began to be changed, because people's desires and hearts and priorities began to change over a season. And that is what we see, and that's why the people reacted so strongly. John Polehill, he's a theologian and wrote a commentary in the book of Acts. He says, the gospel is always at its most controversial when it comes into conflict with economic interests. The gospel is always at its most controversial when it comes into conflict with economic interests. Now, you don't have to go to the back of the book of Acts to see that that's true, amen? We could point to any newspaper of any day in the last several years, and we could see how the message of Jesus Christ gets a little cloudy when it affects my money, when it affects my safety, when it affects my livelihood, my retirement. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said it like this. He says, like the early Christians, we must move into a sometime hostile world armed with the revolutionary gospel of Jesus Christ. And with this powerful gospel, we shall boldly challenge the status quo. You see, what faithful ministry in a place looks like over time is cultural transformation. Economy shifts because people's affections are different now. What people want is different. And look at the response here in verse 28. When they heard this, talking about the silversmiths and the other people of of commerce and merchants, They were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. They all rushed together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus and Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. And although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. What happened was a riot, y'all. The merchant said, Hey, this, this dude Paul is preaching in such a way that it's affecting our pockets, so here's what we'll do. We'll stir up a riot because we'll use religion as a tool for economic interest to protect our pockets. We'll claim that they are not worshiping the gods that they should be worshiped, the god Artemis in that city. And so the amphitheater that they were in is not a small outside park. It's, it holds about 25,000 people. And so thousands of people throng into the amphitheater screaming out, great is the Artemis of Ephesians blasphemies before God, dragging along any Christian disciple they could find into the atmosphere, screaming at them. Why this strong reaction? This is one of the strongest reactions we're going to see from people responding to the preached message of Christ. One of the strongest reactions outside of straight killing the prophets. This is one of the strongest reactions. Why? Because the reality is Satan isn't worried about nominal Christianity, y'all. This is why when you begin to really change, opposition happens. When you begin to really take this thing seriously, it gets hard. Satan isn't worried about you just coming to church. Satan isn't worried about you just reading your Bible. Satan isn't worried about you just doing nice things because you're a nice person. It's when you begin to take those things seriously, letting the the power of God change and transform your life. When you begin to see yourself as not an attendee, but as a body, as a family, now all of a sudden it's a problem. When your nice works are really just you pointing people to Jesus because your love for them, because of the, the love he has for you, then all of a sudden now that's a problem. When you read your Bible not to check a box, but to feed your soul and to live your life based on what you find there, Now that's when the devil has a problem with you. Nominal Christianity does not worry Satan. 
It's when those things begin to point to a greater reality. It's when those things begin to transform us from the inside out. That's why the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is so off. Because the reality is we do have an enemy. And the moment you begin to live right, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to oppose you at every turn. You just want to read your Bible to check a box? Life will be great. You just want to come to church and hear an encouraging word and go back and live the same? Life will be good. There's no worry. There's no threat. At Radiant Church, part of our name comes from Matthew 5, 16, which says, In the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This idea of letting our light shine to give God glory is where we partly get the name Radiant from. And you see, our light isn't just good works. It's not, Christians aren't just nice people doing nice things. This light, this good works is good works that give glory to God. Not glory to self, but gives, makes Jesus more famous than he was before. That's what it means to let your light shine. North Charleston doesn't need another building filled with nice people singing songs, y'all. We do need another church people who are wholly submitted to the cross of Jesus Christ, people who are devoted to holiness, devoted to allowing God to transform their lives from the inside out and impacting everything they touch. That's what North Charleston needs. That's what this country and this world needs is the church, not a country club of well-meaning people. We need the church. And that's why the reaction was so strong against Paul, because the church was really being the church. It's okay for y'all to, to worship whatever God, you want to, God, whatever God you want to worship as long as you still come by our idols. As long as your life really isn't transformed to change, you can sing whatever songs you want to sing. You can read whatever book you want to book. You can do whatever you want to do with your Sunday mornings as long as Satan still has Monday through Saturday. But the moment Sunday begins to change Monday, the moment that devotion time in the morning begins to change how you interact with your coworkers and your children and your spouse, and your family, and your friends, and your teachers, the moment that that begins to happen, then it becomes a threat. So verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along some of Paul's companions. Skip down to verse 30. This is my second point here. Although Paul wanted to go in before the, the people, the disciples did not let him. Verse 31, even some of the provincial officials of Asia, Asia some of your translations say Asiarchs, who were with him, were, who were his friends, sent word to him, pleading with him not to venture into the amphitheater. Now stop there for just a second. If you were reading, reading too quickly, you might have missed the significance of that verse, verse 31 in particular. The Asiarchs or the provincial officials, why is that so important that Luke included that? It would make sense that Paul says, hey, man, my people are being dragged into this amphitheater. I don't know what's going to happen to them. Let me go to them and and try to say something, try to calm it down. Let me try to go there and save my friends and my co-laborers. It would make sense for the disciples, the other believers, and the other Christians say, hey, Paul, don't do it. Don't go. Be safe, brother. We need you. But these unbelieving Asian officials said, hey, Paul, don't, don't go either. Why is, that a, why is that key? Why is that? People who did not believe in his God, people who still probably were idol worshipers, wanted to protect Paul. 
You see, the, de- the defenders of the gospel in this situation were unbelievers. Why? Because the integrity of Paul went before him. See, it's a fine line between the gospel disrupting culture and the word of God being used to destroy people. The word of God will disrupt your culture. It will disrupt your priorities. But if it's ever used to destroy people, that's how we know we've missed it. It's been said before that the great commission and the great commandment work hand in hand. Go into all the world preaching and teaching and baptizing. Also, love your neighbor as yourself. See, both of those go hand in hand. Neither one is more important than any other. And a matter of fact, if we destroy one to do the other, that actually proves that we're not doing either. The Great Commission or following the Great Commandment. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Pastor Jake reminded us last week in Ephesians 6.12 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. We do not fight people. We, we do fight sin. We do wage war against evil, but we do not fight people. That's why even unbelievers will come to your defense. Even unbelievers will come to your defense. And some of you have maybe have had that in your life. Something goes missing from the job. Something gets broken. It's like, no, nah, man, you know, he wouldn't do that. No, he's a Christian, man. That's not him. That's not him. We've seen even unbelievers find faith and confidence in our own faith and defend us even against the accusations of others. And that is what's happening. Paul's reputation, even among the unbelieving leaders, they came to his defense. And look what else they said. Verse 35. When the city clerk, one of those leaders, had calmed the crowd down, he said, people of Ephesus, What person is there who doesn't know that the city of Ephesians is the temple garden of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? So stop here for a second. This dude talking but doesn't believe Paul's God. He believes that the Greek god Artemis came down from heaven and should be worshipped. We're talking about unbelievers at this point are talking. Therefore, verse 36, therefore, since these things are undeniable, he says, you must keep calm and not do anything rash. For you have brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddesses. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen are with them, have a case against anyone, the courts are in session and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it must be decided in a legal assembly. In fact, we run the risk of being charged with rioting for what happened today since there is no justification we can give as a reason for this disturbance. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Paul wanted to come in and defend himself. Matter of fact, one of the, Jew, one of the Jews tried to send one of, their, one of their people, Alexander, in to try to clean it up, and he was shouted out. Who came to the defense of the gospel in this moment? Who came to the defense of the work of ministry? The unbeliever did. Because of the reputation, the credibility, and the integrity of the believers in that city. Now, Paul's a good dude, man. If you've got a charge against him, take it to court. Because we don't believe that you can prove it. You feel like he's done something illegal? I disagree, but if you have your case, take it to court. In this entire story, the Christians or Paul, their voice is not heard in this. It's been the believers fighting the unbelievers. It's been the unbelievers fighting the unbelievers. One is screaming for blood. The other one is saying, no, these guys are innocent because of the witness. And we see the tension of Christianity in this, don't we? How it both infuriates some people and yet seems so noble to others. 
That's why sometimes when you share the gospel, some people get upset and some people want to lean in. That's why when you ask, hey, man, can I pray for you? Some people are genuinely grateful. Some people are offended. It's not the gospel is deficient. It's just people's hearts responding differently. The same gospel that Paul preached engendered him to the rulers and infuriated the merchants. Why? Because the merchant's priority was self and money. And God, religion is fine as long as it doesn't change my life. We have people like that today that see religion as a good thing. I have friends of mine that say, hey, man, I'm glad you're a Christian, man. Everyone needs something. Anyone heard that? You know, everyone needs a little thing. That's a, that's a little crutch for you. I, mean, I appreciate you got, that's good that you got something to get you through hard times. Like, is this some, like, rabbit's foot that I'm, I'm holding on to? So no one really disagrees with Christianity, the, uh, the religion that doesn't impact your life. But the moment you begin to say, no, man, I'm, I'm going to raise my kids this way. I'm going to love my wife this way. I'm going to order my life this way. The moment you begin to really live this thing out, you will be both offended. You will both offend the world and gather the world around you at the same time. And that's the reality. And that's what it looks like to be faithful over a season. So let me give you a couple of quick applications, and then we will be done for today. Number one, dear Christian, don't go chasing the fruit of sin. Don't, don't teach people inadvertently that they have to clean their lives up before they come to Christ. It's a story. I've shared it several times because it's, for me, it's one of the most powerful moments of, of my life. When I was sharing the gospel, I had a good brother of mine when I was in college. He came to me one night and he said, hey, man, I, you know, I just want you to know that I stopped drinking. And I was, I was waiting for the rest of that story, but he was trying to say, hey, man, I get, give me a check mark before God. I know you know God, and I know I'm trying to get right, so just tell God that I'm trying. And I, I looked at him, and once again, I wouldn't recommend saying this the way I said it, but I was like, Why? Like, why would you stop drinking? You, you've said no to Jesus. You're going to die and go to hell. You should do whatever you want to do in this life. You should just live it up. Push people in the street, kick people in the shin, do whatever you want to do. Because at the end of it is hell if you don't accept Jesus. God's not saying, well, he, man, I wish I would have let him into heaven, but he's not drinking that old alcohol. That's not what kept them out, and that's not what's going to get him in. It's his relationship with Jesus. And sometimes we inadvertently tell people that. We correct the wrong things. My unbelieving friends' problems aren't the problems that they think they are. It's Jesus. Your relationship problems, and they call you for advice, it's Jesus. Their problems with their, their relatives and their family, and they're asking you for advice, it's Jesus. Because until that problem gets fixed, nothing else you do matters. Nothing else you do matters. But here's the flip side of that coin. That means you don't have to get yourself right before you come to him. He wants you as you are, so that not that you can stay as you are, but so that he can change you. So, church, let us tell the whole truth about the good news of Jesus Christ. There is no credit for behavior modification. It's only surrender that counts. Giving it all to him. And for the unbeliever here, this scene of a crowd chanting crazy things may seem weird to you, may seem strange to you, but there was another time when there was a crowd chanting something very different. Crucify him. Crucify him. Except this time, no one came to Jesus' defense. Matter of fact, those who were with him left him. 
Isaiah 53 says that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. And like a sheep silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Not only did no one come to Jesus' defense, he did not come to his own defense. Jesus was crucified and nailed to a tree like a criminal beside two other criminals. Okay, don't feel bad for him just yet because the story's not over. See, although he was nailed to a tree like a criminal alone with no one to defend him, he needed no one to come to his defense because although he would lay down for three days, he would get up. And he wouldn't get up in the same way. He would get up with all power in his hands, proving that when I said I was God, I wasn't playing. When I said you can trust me, I wasn't playing. When I said I came to inaugurate the new covenant, I wasn't playing. And so he rose with all power in his hands, proving that he was the very word and person of God. So don't listen to the crowds. Some days they're, they're screaming out, great is Artemis. By the way, who knows who Artemis is? Raise your hand if you know who Artemis is. Should be like one or two homeschoolers. Come on. Y'all still learn the classics. That's public school kids. That, that got cut off the budget. <laughs> so we know the Pythagorean theorem, but that's not it, you know. The reality is, Artemis is only remembered because he's in the Bible. Artemis is forgotten. Diana is forgotten. Those people are forgotten. They're chanting, great is Artemis, but guess what? They're gone. That city is gone. Matter of fact, if you go to Ephesus today, it's mostly a tour site an excavation area. That stuff is gone by the winds of time, but faith in Jesus Christ stands the test of time. Jesus is still here. Demetrius' name was forgotten. The only reason we know Demetrius is because his connection to Paul, and the only reason we know Paul is his connection to Jesus. Everything in this life is going to pass away. Everything that the world is chanting for right now is going to die. None of it's going to be worth it. The only thing that will last is what you do for Jesus. And that's dangerous, y'all. I don't want to lie to you. That's dangerous. The moment you step on the front lines, you're liable to get shot at. The moment you try to live for Jesus, Satan will come against you. That's why we need one another. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle. There is a fight. We have overcome through Jesus Christ, but yet we still got to go to battle. And it's better to go together, isn't it not? It's better to go knowing that you have brothers and sisters in the fight with you. That's why we do this whole church thing, y'all. I came to, I've been growing to church my whole life, and it took me my whole life to realize why we do this. We do this to be trained and equipped and encouraged to know that we've got people fighting along with us. People we can learn from, people we can hold up one week, and people who can hold us up the next. That's why this thing is so important. It's more than just attending a Sunday morning service. It's about being part of a family, and that family has a mission. And that mission has an enemy. So the encouragement this morning, dear believer, is to have the resolve of Paul, to have the resolve of Jesus despising the shame of the cross. He endured it for the joy that's on the other side, for the joy. And I I don't want us to, to forget that. I know we talk a lot about mission here. We talk a lot about being God's hands and his feet, and those things are true, but I don't want us to forget eternity because that's what makes it worth it, y'all. The Bible says that if we are not resurrected from the dead, Christians are to be pitied above all men. Why? Because we don't get everything out of this life that we feel like we should. We don't get all the good that we feel like we've earned. 
We don't, people don't treat us the way we treat them. They don't love us the way God calls us to love them. They don't forgive us the way God calls us to forgive them. And it feels like we're going to get the short end of the stick, but then we die and then we see him. And that's what makes it worth it is the joy that was set before Jesus took him to the cross. And the joy that is set before you, believer, is what will take you through this battle and through this fight. A stand for truth. Let's preach truth. Let's love people. And let's look forward to the day we're all united with the Father. Amen. Let's pray for it. Father.